Um, so my name is Mark Rohr. Uh, I know probably met most of you guys, and so thank you for joining us today. Uh, as Courtney just read, we'll be in the book of Mark, and that doesn't have to, have to do anything with my name. We're going to look at the book of Mark. Um, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Um, we started our series last week. Tanner started us looking at the book of Mark, and we did verses 1 through 8 last week and looking at John the Baptist. And this week, as we just saw, we'll be looking at uh, as Jesus... Uh, comes onto the scene for the first time, and is baptized, and then is tempted in the wilderness. And so that's what we'll be looking at today. But I want to start off our time, I want you uh, to right now, picture, picture maybe a time in your life, or maybe you're going through it right now, where it's a time of great anticipation. Right? Maybe it's a time that you didn't know if you were going to get that job or not. Maybe it's a time that you know your child is about to be born. Maybe it's a time when your bride is about to walk down the aisle and you're about to receive and be in union in marriage, right? We have great uh, times in our life that have uh, lots of weight in them and that results in anticipation. We anticipate the moment, right? Because we don't really know what it's going to look like. We may see it on TV. We may see it on social media, right? But if, we're, if you're in it, you really don't know what to expect, or at least I know I don't. I know for, the, uh, for me, the most, uh, mo- most memorable moments for waiting in great anticipation was when I married my bride and when, I, when we, our child was born. I remember uh, when I was up on stage uh, waiting for Yari to walk down the aisle. I hadn't seen her. We did that no look or whatever you call it. So I hadn't seen her yet, uh, so no tears had come out yet. Uh, and so I, but I was up on stage with the minister and with my, with my guys, and I just was, like, nervous as heck uh, to the point of almost passing out. <laughs> Literally, I told Yadi that. I was like, I almost ruined the wedding because of that. Uh, but it was nervous in the sense of excitement and joy and anticipating my bride coming through those doors, right, and seeing her. Um, and, and I'm just thinking, like, what am I going to do? Am I going to sing? Am I going to dance? Am I going to smile, laugh for, jump and laugh for joy? I did all those except for the singing part. I, I didn't do that. Um, so yeah, so we, we all know that, that, that feeling of anticipation, and when Yardi came down the aisle and I finally saw that anticipation was gone, right, and I could finally be in the moment. I could enjoy what I've been waiting for, right? So the text that we're going to look at today will show that the long await of anticipation will finally come. The long await for a Savior who was promised from the beginning comes on to the scene. The one who we can enjoy forever. We will see Jesus humbly come and start his journey to the cross where sin and death are conquered. Let me read verses 9 through 13, and let me pray, and we'll start. Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 13, again says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the waters, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Father, thank you just for the opportunity to open your word. God, we pray, uh, God, as we uh, spend these next few minutes in your word, God, that you would uh, reveal yourself to us. God, that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed, encouragement where encouragement is needed. Father, if someone doesn't know you in this room, God, that you would bring repentance uh, into their life and that they would come to know you as their Savior. 
Uh, thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So as we see again in, in verse 9, um, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So like last week, Tanner talked on John the Baptist, how he was kind of a hype man. I liked his analogy of like a UFC fighter coming out and the hype man's in front of them getting hyped up. I think Trenton could do that for me one time, right? But he's the hype man coming out, and he's preparing the people for who the guy is, right? He's telling, hey, get ready. This guy is going to knock that guy out, right? And so John the Baptist, in a sense, is the forerunner of Jesus. It says in Isaiah that he is the guy that come to prepare the ways. And that's amazing to me that in the book of Isaiah that was written way before the book of Mark, that this was a prophecy that was going to happen, that John the Baptist was going to come on the scene and prepare the way of the Lord. Right, telling the people to repent, right? And in the book of John, we see be, why? Because the Lamb of God is here, right? And Jesus, who is to come to take away the sin of the world. So that's who John the Baptist is. And we see uh, in verse 9, it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And I don't know if you know anything about Nazareth of Galilee, but this region, uh, this town of Nazareth and Galilee, was a region uh, that was very small. And it's kind of like one of the, I don't know if you've been to Wink. And you know why they call it Wink, Texas? Because if you wink, you miss it. That's what I heard this week. Anyways, I've never been there. But that's what this town of Nazareth was. It was a place that was a no-name. If someone said, I'm from Nazareth, they'd be looked down in that culture. Even in the book of John, we see that when a disciple, when Jesus comes on the scene, one of the disciples says, who, who comes, what good comes from Nazareth? Right? And he's like, I know no one, no, nothing good can come from that town. The reason that it was despised is because it's from distance from Jerusalem, which is where the temple was, which is where they worshipped. It was really far away. And for its infestation of Gentiles. Gentiles were looked down by the Jewish people because they were not of their heritage. The thought was that nothing good can come from this area, but we will soon see that this is wrong. So we see also here in verse 9 that the first thing Jesus Christ does is get baptized. I know for most of us now, I wish we had a baptism up here. Maybe we'll get a trough or something. Um, but I know for most of us, when we hear the word baptism, we think of, a, we picture someone up in front of the church or maybe in the ocean or a lake and with two people in there, one guy is going to baptize the other right. And he says a few words and then go in, under the water and come back up, right? And everyone claps. And that is the right vision. That's the right imagery that you should have. But I, wanna, I, wanna, I want us to have a right picture of what we really uh, see here and what baptism really represents. I want to make clear uh, also here at the start, as we talk about baptism, the act of baptism does not save you. Scripture is clear that we are made right before God by faith, by grace through faith. None of our good works can save us. Jesus himself, I love this, Jesus himself denies the need for works to accomplish salvation in the most famous quote of John 3.16. I think maybe most of us could quote that, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? In that, in that verse, Jesus says, it doesn't say if you have good works, right? If, you, if you are baptized or if, you're, if your good works outweigh your bad works, then you will receive eternal life. But Jesus says if you believe, right, you will not perish but you will have eternal life. Jesus says if you trust in me and believe in me, then you will have eternal life. All right, so baptism does not save you. We were, me and a, uh, one of my mentors were down in South Padre sharing the gospel with some people this last week, and we talked to many people, and we, just, we had this verse in our hand, and we'd go around uh, just praying with people, and then we'd say, hey, can we share something with you that we believe is the best news in the world? 
And we'd share this verse with them and show them that it's not what you do, it's not how good, or good you are that gets you to heaven, but it's through Jesus alone. And most people are like, there's no way. I've done way too many bad things in my life that God would accept me now, right? But that's what Scripture says. If you believe in Jesus, you will receive eternal life. And so we see that here. So with that, we come back to Mark, where we see John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. Mark does not give detail. Um, as we see here, this is very simple. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And that's all the information Mark gives us. Uh, so in order to have a more detailed look, we need to turn to the book of Matthew. And so if you want to, real briefly, it'll be on the screen, I think. But Mark, Matthew chapter 3 is will be briefly to have a deeper look at the baptism of Jesus. So as we saw last week in Mark uh, 1 through 4, which says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then, and then Matthew 3, 2, it says, Our Matthew, yeah, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we see the word repent, right? And so in order to really understand uh, a baptism, in order to understand what, what is going on right here with Jesus, we need to understand what that word repent means. So the word repent here means a decisive change, a turning away from sin to a life of obedience that flows from trust in God. Right? And so I saw it one time illustrated where this guy was walking this way, and on a dime he stops, does a 180, and goes this way. That's what repentance is in, in a sense, is that you're walking one day and, and, and dwell in the flesh and, and sin and slave to sin, but when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you, go, you stop going that way and you start trusting in Jesus and go this way. Right? So that's what repentance looks like. It's a decisive change, a turning away from sin to a life of obedience that flows from trust in God. We see in Mark uh, chapter 1 and, and 5 and Matthew 3, 3 6, that repentance involves confession. Matthew 3, 6 says, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We see that repentance involves confession. The people were coming to John the Baptist, confessing their sin because they realized that they had sinned against God. Right? You don't go to someone and confess sin. You don't go to someone and ask for forgiveness if you don't think you've done something wrong. But these people, in hearing that John the Baptist's message, they realized that they had sinned against God and they needed to go get right with him. Right? And, that go, and that means going to confess their sins and be in baptism, showing that they have trusted in Jesus from the heart. In repenting, though, it does not stop with just confessing that you have messed up, but there is a deep realization that you have sinned against God. So when Michael, my son, when he grows up, if he comes to me and says, Dad, I'm sorry, and it walks away. Is he really sorry? My dad's here today. I've done that to him, I know. Right? He would say no. Right? Michael, when that is not, he's not sorry. He's just, he's just sorry he got caught. Right? He's not really sorry. So we, when we see this, when it says uh, confession, it's not, it's not just enough to confess it. But it's, again, it's this deep realization that you have sinned against God. There's a sorrowfulness that you have offended God, which leads to godly repenting. Right? I love that when, when you realize what you've done and, and, and sinned against God, that, that should lead you to, to go to the throne of, of grace and say, Lord, please forgive me. I sinned against you and you alone, as David cries out in Psalm 51. Right? The Bible says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. John the Baptist, as we have seen, is preparing the way for Jesus 
to come on the scene who will ultimately take away our sin through the cross. So we see that baptism, therefore, is an outward sign of inward spiritual reality, realizing that you are a sinner and repent by turning away from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So in, in, in baptism, when, the, when they dunk someone, right, it's showing that they've died with Christ, their old self is gone, right, and they're risen to new life in Christ now. The Bible says that the old is gone, behold, the new has come. You're a new creation in Christ if you come to him um, in repentance. And so that's what baptism pictures. So the question that I have is, why would Jesus need to be baptized? That's the question we should be asking, right? If baptism is a symbol of, of someone repenting from their sin and, and turning to trust in God, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Right? We, we understand from Scripture that Jesus Christ is sinless. Right? He had no sin. He never sinned once in his whole life. I couldn't imagine living a whole life without sin. That's this amazing thought, but that's what Jesus did. He was sinless and had therefore no need to repent. John the Baptist knows this. And look at Matthew 3.14. It says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So John the Baptist knows that Jesus is sinless. And that's why he asked this question, which I think is a great question. I'd be asking the same question. Right? Like, Jesus, you are the one that should be baptizing me. I am the sinner. You are the sinless one. Why do you come to me for free? Why do you come to me to be baptized? Right, but look at Matthew 3, 15, what Jesus says. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So we see here that Jesus' answer to John the Baptist's question is to fulfill all righteousness. In order to be in relationship with God, we are required to be holy as he is holy, the Bible says. We are required to be righteous as he is righteous. The problem is, because of our sin, because of my sin and your sin, we are not living a life of righteousness that God requires if we are to be with him. Right? We see that in the garden before sin entered the world. Adam and Eve were walking with God in, in, in a deep relationship. Could you imagine that? Walking with God, communing with God as a friend does with a friend. But right when they disobeyed God, ate of the apple, the Bible says sin entered the world and they were separated. Adam and Eve were shamed what they did. They hid from God, right? And therefore, they were not righteous anymore. Therefore, they were not holy anymore, and they could not be in the presence of God. You and I have that same reality in our life, that we are separated from God because of your sin and my sin. We love the darkness rather than the light. So therefore, we are separated from him. And this is a tremendous problem. The good news is God did not leave us. We see that Jesus Christ's baptism shows that he came to identify with you and me as sinners. In Isaiah, it says that Jesus Christ is to be counted among the rebels. Right? Did you hear that? Jesus Christ came down to earth, away from heaven, to this to the sinful world, to be counted among the rebels, which is us. Meaning, Jesus consented to be counted as if he were a sinner, along with everyone else. He allowed himself to be identified with the sorrows and the sufferings of rebellious humanity. And that's just an amazing God that we serve. No other religion in the world has this truth. Every other religion says that you have to do good enough to get to God. But we have a God who, who sees that we cannot reach him on our own. And so therefore he comes to us. He identifies with us. He takes on human flesh. And ultimately we see that he dies on the cross for us. 
I love that one commentator says, this act of baptism foreshadows the time on the cross when he will die for the sins of the people of Israel and indeed for the sins of all those who are his. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For your sake and my sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ, sinless, became sin for you and for me. That's just amazing. He took all of your, all your sin, all of my sin upon himself and said, I'm doing this so that you can become righteous again, so that you can be in the presence of God again. Isn't that amazing to think about that God loves us that much that he sent his only, one, only begotten son, again, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Fulfilling all righteousness includes Jesus living a life of perfect obedience to his Father's will. And for all those who trust in him, his righteousness is transferred to you. This means simply that when Jesus died on the cross, God treated him as if he had lived your life. And he punished him as if your sin was his sin. Now because of that, he treats you as if you lived Christ's life. So Christ lived a perfect life with perfect obedience to everything God commanded, including baptism, in order that his perfect life would be credited to your account. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if you've ever had debt in your life, but that's a huge weight on your shoulders, right? But when you're debt-free, what is that feeling like? It's amazing. And just think that there's this debt in our life because of sin, and there's no way you can ever pay it off. Not in a million years. If you could live a million years, you can never pay this debt because it is... It is so big and so wide, right? And God is holy and perfect, and we will never be there. But Jesus came on the cross and paid your debt. He paid my debt so that we can be in union with him again. I love this, this analogy that someone told me. If you would, picture yourself in a courtroom, and the judge is up here, and you are in this hot seat knowing that you are, you are going to be condemned because you have done the crime. And the judge is justified to slam the gavel and say, Mark, you are, you, I'm, I'm justified to send you to prison forever. I'm justified to send you to the death penalty forever because of what you've done. Right? We see that, that a just judge would do that. If, 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 if a judge has slapped me on the hand and said, just leave, that would not be a just judge. Right? So we see that God is a just judge, so he has to, he has to condemn sin. Right? But the great news is that just as he's about to slam the gavel, Someone, Jesus steps in to my seat and says, Mark, I'm going to take your penalty upon myself. You get to go free. I'm going to pay your debt, which is my life, right? Which is life. My sin deserves death. So Jesus dies my death, and I get to go free. What an amazing truth that is to know that Jesus did that on our behalf. So in order that his perfect life uh, could be credit your account right if you have trusted in Christ, though. It's not just enough to say, I believe in, in God, right? I believe, I know of him, but do you know him as your Savior, right? Because if you have trusted in him, this means that when you stand before God on Judgment Day, God is going to see Jesus Christ in his righteousness, which will be your cover. When we stand before God one day, if you were in Christ, I'm going to be trembled, I'm sure. And God, I don't know what he's going to say, but he may say, why do you deserve to be entered into heaven? I'm going to say, because of Christ's righteousness on my behalf. Nothing that I've done, but to the cross I cling, right? I cling to Jesus. 
So this act of exchange in which Jesus takes our sin and gives to us his righteousness is depicted here beforehand when he is baptized by John. What an amazing Savior we have who, who was humiliated on your and my behalf, who came and was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you think about it, the shame that you have, the shame that I know I have because of my sin, that I pray no one would ever know, right? Those deep secrets in my heart that I pray that no one would ever know, right? Because of how ashamed I am of those things. Jesus took those things on himself. He was shamed on my behalf. He took my shame, all my guilt, all my debt on himself, right? And was shamed for me. In Hebrews it says that, uh, he was, uh, in his shame, he, he was despised and rejected, right? And he, and he took all of our shame on himself so that we could be cleansed. Isn't that an amazing truth? So if you're here today and you don't know you've been cleansed by Jesus, I pray that you would run to the cross, then that you would confess your sins and repent and know that Jesus lovingly takes you in and forgives you of all your sins so that you can be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Let's look at uh, uh, Mark chapter uh, 1, 10 through 11. It says this, And when he came out of the water, meaning Jesus, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So we see here in these two verses that, uh, what happened after Jesus' baptism. The first thing is that the Spirit descended on Jesus. So again, another question is, if Jesus is God in the flesh, the question we must ask is, was Jesus only human at birth and became God incarnate and in the flesh because the Holy Spirit came on him at baptism? And the answer is no. The Bible says Jesus was in the beginning and Jesus is God. He, has, he had a divine nature from eternity past at his conception and will have it to, on to eternity. So the question is what, is, what is the significance of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus here? The Spirit anointed the human nature of Jesus. He performed his miracles and his human nature through the power of the Holy Spirit, give it to him at baptism. Right? If we remember Philippians 2, uh, it talks about that. Jesus emptied himself. Right? He, God is, Jesus is fully man at this moment. Right? He's, he, as we'll see in later, if we look at the temptation of Jesus, that he really does experience Satan's temptations. He experienced hunger and agony. Right? When Jesus dies on the cross, he's in agony in the garden. He's sweating drops of blood because he knows what's about to happen to him. So he is fully human. So we see here that Jesus, he performed his miracles in his human nature through the power of the Holy Spirit given to him at baptism. God empowered Jesus to fulfill the mission he had given to him. Secondly, we see the love God, God the Father has for the Son. Look at verse 11 again. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And before that, in verse 10, it says the, tech, the, the heavens were torn open, right? Could you imagine walking outside and you see the sky like that? That would be crazy. But that's, that's, that's depicted here. And it reminds us of Isaiah 64.1, where Isaiah says the same thing. In Isaiah's day, the Israelites, were, who were God's people, were going the, the opposite way, not towards God. They were defying God. And Isaiah came to prophesy to the people of Israel, saying, Turn back to God. Turn back to God. But they continued in their sin. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 64, is just 
asking God, please come, please tear the heavens open, and please speak to your people. Please, we need you. We need to see you. Right? He wishes that God would leave his heavenly home and come down to earth. That God would split the sky that hides from humanity. Right? God is hiding from humanity uh, in a sense right? He, that, God, that people are just indwelt in sin. And so Isaiah is crying out, please come and save your people. So what we see here is God doing exactly that. He speaks and shows that he will. Uh, he is well pleased with Jesus, his son, who has come to take away sin. And now remember, if you, if you know your history, that, G, that this is the first time that God has spoken in over 400 years. Right? There was a, there was a, 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 sil- there was a silence for 400 years where, from the last prophet before the New Testament started that there was silence from God. No one had heard from God. Right? But here we see that God finally breaks through. Right? And he says, a voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I will please. And I could just imagine the people saying, wow, like the Lord has come. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. We have been, waiting, we have been patiently waiting, eagerly anticipating him to come. And now he is here. I love that, that, that analogy of, of the heavens being split. Right? And then Christ has come. So this shows that God is confor- uh, confirming that Jesus is the promised Messiah King who was to come and is now here. God, by saying this, is showing that Jesus is the final high priest who will also be the final sacrifice once and for all. All who trust in him will have access through him to God the Father. Right? Again, going back to sin, because of your sin, you are separate from God. But Jesus has come on the scene, and God is, is confirming that this is his Son who has come to take away the sin of the world, so that through him, if you accept him as your Savior, you'll have access to God. That's just an amazing thought. So Jesus is not just a mere man again, but he is God. He has come that you would have life eternal. And the question is, do you know him as your Savior? With all this, uh, in the midst of this, I wish we had more time to talk about this. Um, Maybe afterwards if you want to. But we see that in the baptism of Jesus was a Trinitarian event. On the subject of the Trinity, we we don't have much time to talk about it. But we see here clearly all the persons of the Godhead. The Son is baptized, the Father speaks, and the Spirit rests upon Jesus. The beginning of the Gospel of Mark gives us a brief glimpse into the nature of our God, the great three-in-one. And that's a hard concept to wrap your mind around, but that's how great our God is, that He is one God, right? And, and three, the, I like what this says, the great three-in-one, right? One God, but three essence, right? The Spirit the Son, and the, and the Father. All right, so that's what we see here. And that's just amazing. So lastly, we'll look at verse 12 to 13. So it says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So these verses, to me, and I think most of us come to surprise, the Son of God, right, comes onto the scene, and the first thing that the Spirit does after he, descend, after he rests upon him is that he drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And that's like a shocker to me, right? Like, everyone should be like, let me get a selfie with you, Jesus. This is him, right? Let me, I'm going to go start my ministry now. But instead, the Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness before Jesus starts his public ministry for a, for a time of testing. So we see that this is no accident. Jesus did not resist the leading of the Holy Spirit, but embraced it. 
The text shows that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. He was driven urgently into a desolate, God-forsaken place. The wilderness depicts a place of grueling conditions, kind of like Odessa. Maybe not as bad when the wind blows, right? But it's a place of grueling conditions, and we see in Matthew that Jesus was fasting for 40 days. We don't see that here in Mark, but again, in the other gospel, Matthew, Jesus is not just there, but he's fasting for 40 days. With all these circumstances, Jesus is also tempted by Satan. So if it's not enough to be in the wilderness, not enough to fast for 40 days, but then Satan has come to tempt Jesus. I think it would have been very easy for Jesus to grumble and complain and give in. I know I would have. Jesus Christ's temptation reminds us of the first temptation that happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. There are key differences between the circumstances of their temptation and Jesus Christ's temptation. If you remember in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, before sin into the world, they were in a lush garden, right? I'm sure Albany knows she's the, the green thumb. She, she's the gardener, right? They were in a lush garden, and Jesus Christ, we see here, is a distant place. Adam and Eve enjoyed intimate companionship with each other without sin and enjoyed fellowship with God. We see here that Jesus Christ was alone with no companionship or fellowship. Jesus, in his human nature, was ravaged, by hunger, and this is when Satan comes to tempt him. But we see, we'll also see the similarity between Adam and Eve and the, and the test that Satan brings upon them, which is, do you remember in Genesis, what, what did Satan say to Eve? Did God really say? Right? Did God really say that you will die? Right? Did God really say you should not eat of that because you will die? Right? He's this, he is the ultimate deceiver. The Bible calls him the father of lies. Right? And Adam and Eve, instead of obeying their good father who has given them everything in fellowship with him, she succumbs to the lie of Satan and eats of the apple, and so does Adam. And that's when sin entered the world. And because of that one act of disobedience, you and I now have the result of that in our life, that you and I are sinners as well. That's been passed down to us. Adam was the representative head of humanity. So because Adam has sinned, you and I inherit that sin. So that's, what, that's why when people say, I'm a sinner because I sinned, right? That's what that means. When I, I sin because I am ultimately a sinner. So they failed the test, right, of, of trusting God. Because of that one act of obedience, we see again that we're separate from God. But thankfully again, as we'll see, that Jesus endured Satan's temptation. Satan, for example, if you remember in the other Gospels, he says a, kind of a similar question. If you are truly the Son of God, command these stones into bread. Right? It's kind of similar language, right? Did God really say? Right? And here's Satan, and one of the temptations, if you are truly the Son of God, command these stones to make them into bread. Right? Because Jesus is ravaged with hunger, right? He's starving, right? He's been fasting for close to 40 days now. And so Satan is saying, if you are truly the Son of God, command these stones to make them into bread. Instead of believing Satan lies, though, Jesus trusts in his good Father who provides and fought the lie with, with the word of God. Jesus Christ yielded not to Satan's lie, but he yielded to, the God, to God's word. And I think that is such awesome language, that word yield, but I think it's so hard for all of us to do, is to yield, right? Me and Devante were talking about that. It's hard to yield to the word of God, right, and day in and day out, because we look at it as work. We look at the word of God that Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdensome, and I will give you rest. 
right? And so Jesus here, he fights Satan's temptation with the word of God. When we were at that same uh, mission trip last week, I was talking to an army ranger who was a, he, a special forces guy with a Navy SEAL next to him, and I was just like googly eyes because I was like, this is awesome. Um, <laughs> I love army stuff. But anyway, this military guy, big buff dude, had done a lot of hard things in his life because of his job. He said when he got back from war after 11 years of fighting, he uh, was an alcoholic and lots of other things, drug abuse. And you know what he told me? He said, Mark, I had to surrender. And he's like, in my language, that's hard. We don't say that, right? But the only way that I realized that I could, get, could be away from this stuff is if I surrendered to Jesus Christ. And that was just like, threw me back. I'm like, man, I love that. Like, that word surrender is, most people don't want to use that language, but here it is the perfect word, right? To yield, to surrender to the word of God. I love what Mark MacArthur says. He says, the word, watchfulness, and prayerfulness. That's it. No magic. That's how you deal with temptation. Pour the word in. Stay alert. Understand what's going on around you by way of temptation. By discerning and fall prostrate before God and cry out for his power. That's the path to triumph. Right? Just like that military guy, just as we see here, Jesus yielded to the word of God, surrendered. Right? In the same way, you and I, the way to fight temptation is to be in the Word daily, stay alert, right, and fall to our knees and cry out for God's power and strength to help us fight this temptation. So we see that Jesus withstood everything Satan had to throw at him, and ultimately we see Jesus Christ triumph over Satan, sin and death in the end, when he dies willingly on the cross. Jesus Christ's triumph means salvation for you and for me. So the first Adam we saw, who was the head of humanity, believed the lie and doubted God. And the result, as we continue to see today, is death through sin. Death is a direct result of sin. And because all of us will die one day, that shows that you and I are sinners. Jesus Christ, though, who is the second Adam, the Bible says, has come to represent a new humanity. He lived a perfect, obedient life to his Father and for all those who trust in him. His righteousness will be transferred to us as a free gift. We will be forgiven because Jesus Christ is our sin bearer. So in our time of response, I encourage you to ask yourself, have I been made right with God through Christ's righteousness being applied to me? And I love the song that says, I shall die, right? I think it says, I fly to the cross pretty much, right? I fly to the cross or else I die. Right? The only way that you and I are going to live here now and into eternity is if we run and fly to the cross. This picture of all the shame that you have in your life right now and that Jesus has come to take that upon himself to bear that for your sake and for my sake. So if you don't know, if you know Jesus today, I just ask you in our time of response as the band comes up here in a sec uh, to, to sing and, and lead us in that, just reflect on that in your own life. And ask yourself, is, has Christ's righteousness been applied to me? Right? Am I right before God the Father? Not because of how good I am, but because of what Jesus did on my behalf. Right? Um, if you have not, uh, I'll be in the back. Uh, whoever else, you can talk to someone here and, and, and ask how you do that. Or if you need more information, we'd love to talk to you about that. If you've received forgiveness of your sins, but if you haven't followed in baptism, this is the place to do it. We don't have one here, but get this. 
the Fun Dome has offered their pool for us to baptize people. Right? So that's awesome. So if you've never been baptized and if you, are, if you believe that you've been forgiven of your sins through Christ and you want to follow in obedience to baptism, which you should, right? me and Tanner would love to talk to you more about that and we can get that set up. If you've received forgiveness and have been baptized, I pray in our time of response, if y'all can come up, um, I pray that we will reflect uh, on God's goodness towards you. Right, right now in these moments, just reflect how good God is to you. That he came and gave his life for you and for my sake. That he, like, it's, I, I wish I could just say it in a better way, but I know the word of God is sufficient. Right? The word of God is sufficient. And so if you don't know if you, if you have received Christ, just reflect on those things and let it stir you to faith and good works. Jesus Christ has commissioned his disciples Right, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, as it says in Matthew 28. God means for his church to grow through people repenting of their sin. And next week is Easter, which I think is an awesome time as we're ending our time here today. And I encourage you to pray during this time. Ask God to give you opportunity to share and invite someone to church. Not for the sake just to come and sit in a seat, but for the sake of say, hey, Jesus, this Jesus has come for you. And he has risen to new life. Right? And how awesome would it be, uh, as baptism represents, to see someone who dies to their old self through repenting of sin and being raised to new life in Christ on Easter Sunday. What an awesome thing that would be. So I'll be in the back if you need prayer, if you want to talk more about Jesus. Um, and again, just use this time uh, to reflect um, and let the, let the Spirit lead how, how he may. God, thank you just for this opportunity. God, I pray that you would be honored and glorified in our response time. And just uh, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen.